I've been friends of Tom Askell so long, I don't remember how long it's been. <laughs> Part of that's because I'm getting old. Tom is one of the most gracious, kindest, finest men in our denominational life. He always has been, and he's led a ministry that always has been. There's a lot to fight about. <laughs> there always is. And some of you are more familiar with Reformedville than others, so you know that's what Reformed people normally like to do, is, is go around and fight. We just, we just eat it up. It's, it's something. And, uh, you know, our Presbyterian brothers have us beat on that, but we're working on it. So, so uh, you know, it just is what it is. Baptists like to fight, too. They've gotten better about that the past couple of decades. Getting bad about it again. Sometimes fighting is good. Sometimes there's a time. If you aren't courageous enough to fight when you need to fight, what good are you? If the salt has lost its savor, it's fit for nothing. Social justice is not new. Social justice is one of those many terms we have in our life that isn't quite as it appears. As much as it pains me to say it, Tom accidentally used one of those terms. I'm not a founder of PayPal, and I want to stress that now, but I want to use it for an illustration. I got to be present at the creation. It's not quite the same. Peter Thiel founded PayPal. Max Levchin founded PayPal. Elon Musk gets to claim credit for founding PayPal because PayPal merged with X.com in or about March of 2000, and he had founded that. I wasn't that important. I just got to be cupbearer to the king. It's true. It was a glorious thing, but, but as much as you honor me, Tom, and that was just as great an introduction as I've ever had in my life, <laughs> I don't want to take on more than I have earned. Social justice is like that. It tries to take on something that isn't inherent to the term. Justice is defined as all things are defined only by God. And God does define it, and he's very clear. You have to take his word seriously. Some people don't. Some people do, but perhaps don't see it quite as we do. Some people reject it utterly and would like to burn every last Bible to shut up the word in the temple and sacrifice to Baal on the altar that Bezalel made. There's a range of people we're talking about here, and I don't want to condemn them all because they are absolutely not all worthy of condemnation. Many of them are wonderful, God-fearing people who absolutely love the Lord and who really are meaning to do right. It's really important that we be wise enough, discerning enough to know the difference. The difference is not entirely clear all the time. 
I'd go further than that. I don't even know if half of you people are any good. I mean, come on. <laughs> Dr. Gerstner taught us that, that traditionalist total depravity is not total. Well, I think that the traditionalists would absolutely agree with the Reformed that there is at least depravity. I think it was Spurgeon who said that it would be very convenient if, if indeed God had painted a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, but since he didn't, he was going to preach the gospel to all of them. And, uh, and I, I tend to remind my preacher that it would be a really good idea for you to work in the gospel in every message, no matter how short or long, if it's 30 seconds of gospel or 50 minutes of gospel, makes no difference because the, the chairman of the deacons probably needs to get saved. I mean, you just don't know. <laughs> I think we all know a few preachers who need to get saved, so, you know, shouldn't shock us, right? I don't see the heart. God sees the heart. I might see the fruits, but I don't know what the fruits will be tomorrow. I don't know what's done in private. I should have grace toward every man because there but for the grace of God go I. And if the only man in all of Scripture that God said was a man after his own heart could take the wife of one of his closest friends, Uzziah, uh, I'm sorry, Uzziah, oh my goodness, Uriah the Hittite, one of the 30. Isn't that just tragic? You get to the end of the list of the 30, and of course there are 37 in them, and some higher critic somewhere will complain about that. But, but, you know, I'm aware of how the Trump administration works. You only have one secretary of this or that at a time, but you may have a bunch of them. <laughs> and there at the end of that list, who is it? Uriah the Hittite. That's one of his closest friends. One of his mighty men. And he looks down off the roof and there he sees Bathsheba and apparently she's what, what they call down at the high school kind of hot. <laughs> and he liked her. He liked her a little too much. And he ends up getting her pregnant, killing her husband. But God says, that's a man after my own heart. Do you think he was talking about the murder and the, the adultery? No. He was talking about the direction the ethical trajectory, but more than the ethical trajectory, the love David had in his heart for his father. It's the fatherhood of God that we need to spend more time on, not least because it makes less of us. God sees you very much as a father sees a child. Now, now Haley back here, she... She just really probably gets a little tired of me thinking of her as my little girl. And I just remind her, honey, when, when you're 80, I'm going to think you're my baby. That's never going to change. It's not even supposed to. Eventually, they get old enough to understand that, and she has. And I'm grateful because she has a lot to put up with when she puts up with me. But God is so much higher than us. I don't even know how he can imagine us as children. I mean, we're not even at the level of his beloved pets. I mean, we're like slime mold and fungus and moss. I mean, we're just, we're just so dumb. Beside an omniscient, all-knowing, 
wise God who, who not only knows everything you don't know, but knew it before he created all things. All things. There's not a thing you're going to do at lunch today that he hadn't planned out before the foundation of the world. Or that he is not using together for good to those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. Not just in this generation, not just at this lunch hour, but for all of time. Till he returns and beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. And that new Jerusalem descending out of the sky. With all of the attributes of Eden. And yet the garden has become a city. Why? Because population. A great harvest of souls. A wondrous, wondrous land of the children of Adam and the children of Noah and the children of Abraham and the children of God. What a glory it will be. And what you do today at the lunch matters to that. What a marvel this is. I mean, I don't really think a lot about moss and slime mold. Really. I don't really worry a whole lot about what Haley's dogs are thinking. Well, what do they think about social justice? God cares about things that are beneath that on his scale, you and me. And not only that, cared so much that he died on a cross, humiliated, and not just a criminal's death on a cross, but have you thought about the time he chose to live in? He chose to be incarnated in a time without air conditioning, without toilet paper, without penicillin. It's nasty. You want to long for the good old days? Oh, think again. He left a heavenly throne for that, for you. There's a t-shirt going around this place saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Isn't social justice really about shame? Isn't everything of the left really about shame? And is its end not always and in every time power? Power over you. Power over what you think, what you say, what you do. Because what that great theologian Nietzsche teaches. <laughs> There's you one. I knew that'd make you laugh. That greatest of theologians. Frederick Nietzsche, who said when you give up Christian, the Christian God, you give up any right to Christian morality. He wasn't saying it with the direction we would. He was saying it with a very different one. It's why Hitler liked him so much. Because in the absence of the Christian God, you have no right to Christian morality. Christian morality must flow from a creator and a definer. In the absence of that, 
what claim do you have to any morality of any sort? If you're just matter in motion, if you are just a collection of molecules, if you are nothing but an ape that can think and has an opposable thumb and can figure out how to play a video game, if that's all you are, then several things follow logically from that. First, there's no sin nature, so you're completely neutral. Second, might makes right. Because morality is defined by whoever's strongest. And by the way, in reality, that's one of those screw tape truths. Because in fact, right and wrong is defined by who is strongest. Is it not? And arrogating themselves to the level of gods, they assert the same thing, but while ignoring the creator, and they stand in his place and seek to deify the state. And one of the glories of that deified state is that you can go work for the post office and be part of God. Really? There's a lot of attraction to being part of the commissariat. There's a lot of benefit in being part of an institution that dispenses blessings and curses in a covenantal fashion like unto God because the devil can do nothing but counterfeit. We are not dualists that believe there are dueling opposite gods. We are believers in Christ alone. The devil can only counterfeit. God has seen fit for him to roam freely about the earth for a time. But that doesn't make him a god. That makes him a Marvel villain. And we need the Hulk to come along and smack him down. Puny god, puny god, puny god. <laughs> Fortunately, it won't be the Hulk. It'll be Jesus. Social justice is about shame. The devil is about shame. Not justice. Justice is God's work. But you start adding modifiers. It's the most amazing thing how we do that. We start adding an adjective here and there. And all of a sudden we have a completely new thing. This is not new. This is not new in the church. But it didn't start in the church. Now, I would contend if we had, oh, another 40 hours instead of uh, some number of minutes, I would contend that it starts with Eve and Adam. But let's just think about it in terms of what it is, which is cultural Marxism. I hear we're racists now if we call a, you know, a cultural Marxism. How convenient that they get to wait for it, define right and wrong. Because is that not the essence of this entire movement, to redefine right and wrong? And not only that, let's, let's take one of their favorite concepts of the moment, which is microaggression. Could there possibly be a more anti-Christian concept than a microaggression? Now, I'm not saying you can't be a jerk in small ways. Of course you can. <laughs> I'm particularly adept at it. I can give lessons. Some of you can too. 
I'm saying the concept of a microaggression assumes that small hurts should matter. Now, when you were a child, the older ones in the room, you were taught sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Today, I'm sure they get a post-structural feminist lecture in place of that. I don't know what kind of world it will look like when everyone buys into the concept of microaggression, but I know it won't be Christ-like. The idea of turning the other cheek, gone. The idea that we would have grace on our brothers and sisters, gone. The idea that, that we would understand small things to be small and only react to those big things which must face reaction, gone. We must constantly be alienated from one another at all times. That is the new dogma. In fact, the entire dogma of intersectionality assumes that we are already permanently alienated from one another and that we may never, ever be reconciled, which makes this other idea of reconciliation, racial reconciliation, into a, a sad joke. Because if we are permanently alienated from one another, we may never, ever be reconciled. The only possible reconciliation, ladies and gentlemen, is through the cross. It is not through critical theory. It is not through eating the apple. It is only through Christ, in whom there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free. We are brothers and sisters under the fatherhood of God who does truly see us as that five-year-old child that daddy calls out into the garage, says, honey, would you, would you help daddy work on the car? Why, yes, daddy, I'd love to. The boy comes out there, little girl, whatever, and they, they, daddy asks for a wrench, and brings him a hammer, Oh, no, son. That's a hammer. This is what you use a hammer for. This is a wrench. Does daddy need the little boy in the garage at all for anything? No, daddy loves the little boy and wants to teach him through trial and error, which is one of the reasons that we can account, I am sure, for why God allowed there to be a fall in the first place. Because he is teaching us as much through our failings, if not more, than any of our virtues. We see this in the law. Now, if you were in my Monday morning Bible study, you would get more geopolitics than you probably would in a normal Bible study, because I, I do a good bit of that. And so we look at the operation of the law, and we realize that if the Israelites had actually been faithful and kept the law, there would have been some necessary consequences of that. So, for instance, by the operation of the laws of descent, uh, very quickly, over just a few generations, you would have had a subdivision of the land into such tiny plots that agriculture really wouldn't have been terribly viable. 
So what is the necessary historical consequence that we have seen in systems that work that way? After a time, those Israelites, most of them, are going to be compelled economically to lease their tiny plots of land to somebody who wants to specialize in farming. What are they then going to do? Well, they're going to go somewhere where they can get a job. So they're going to go to a city. Maybe it'll be Jerusalem. Maybe it'll be somewhere else. They're going to learn a trade. They're going to be a merchant. After a while, they're going to figure out that, you know what? If you happen to be outside of the territory from Dan to Beersheba, you're not actually obligated to show up in Jerusalem three times a year and live in a booth for a week and stuff like that. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of fun. I mean, I did it once, but come on. So, lo and behold, hey, I'm putting in for the transfer to the Tarshish branch. I want to go open that new branch office in Nineveh. And the people of God would have taken the word of God to all of these people who were once also the people of God, but whose fathers at some point lied to them and created false faiths. And the world would have been suffused with the knowledge of God had they been faithful. What actually happened? They weren't a bit faithful. So God judged them. What happened? They were exiled to the four corners of the earth and took the knowledge of their God with them and established synagogues. And the knowledge of God is throughout the earth. When Paul gets to the various destinations in his journeys, what does he find everywhere? Synagogues teaching the word, however imperfectly. But we know not all of it was imperfect because many of those people came to faith, did they not? God will not be thwarted by your sin. God will not be thwarted by anything. God's plan is perfect and flawless and complete. But it involves sinners. And unless you're just a heel, you feel guilty about some things. So if we can use shame to herd you, it's a powerful tool. Karl Marx was a brilliant man. He was a terrible economist, but he was a brilliant man. And what he figured out was that in the Europe of his day, and in nearly all of the rest of the world too, there was an aristocracy that led everything, and it was entrenched because it was hereditary and because it was seen correctly by those people as legitimate. I'm not in favor of aristocracy because I'm an American. We overthrew those people. But if you happen to be one of the many millions who have sworn fealty to your Lord, whichever Lord that may be, then uh, yes, legitimacy attaches. And, and Marx figured out a way to delegitimize the aristocracy. This is supposedly about power to the people. Is that what happened? Anywhere ever? No. That's not the brilliance of it. The brilliance of it was to get a bunch of people who saw one aristocracy as legitimate to overthrow it and replace it with an aristocracy of Marx's choosing. Is that not exactly what happened? Is that not what happened in every country that has ever succumbed to this ideology ever? To achieve that requires the decimation of the mediating institutions. 
Schaefer talked a lot about this. But you've seen it. You've seen it with the same destruction of the mainline denominations a hundred years ago that we're beginning to see in denominations again. Now what you don't necessarily grasp about what happened then was that, for instance, in the 1920s, uh, the proceedings of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA were front page news whenever they met. Not front page news in the Bay Beacon in Niceville, Florida. No, the New York Times. The church influenced culture in such a pervasive fashion that none could meaningfully stand against it. So if you're on the other side of that equation, wouldn't you need to co-opt the church first? And indeed, the church was co-opted before the New Deal and all that went with it became possible. Isn't that interesting? We see that again. In 2016, 86% of evangelicals voted against the nominee of the Democratic Party. I'm not entirely sure how many of them voted for the nominee of the Republican Party. That is in some dispute. But they most assuredly voted against the nominee of the Democratic Party placing a pro-abortion, anti-religious liberty majority on the Supreme Court for the rest of our lives. That's what they did. So it would logically stand to reason that getting the institutions that give leadership and shepherding to those people out of the way would be a pretty essential goal to a savvy political operation. Some of the people who are involved in that are swayed by their guilt. They look around and they see the sins of churchmen. They see that churchmen have been racist, and they're right. They see that churchmen have been unkind, and they are right. They see that churchmen have mistreated various people, and they are right. They are right for one very simple reason, total depravity. Man is always unkind. Man is always impure. Man is always wrong. Even his rightness, not merely his righteousness, but any rightness that might be in him comes from God alone. There is nothing in you that is good. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So it is easy to manipulate your guilt and your pity. I was born a Baptist. I was a Baptist many years before I was a Christian. And lots of you were too. See, that'll get a laugh with Baptists. The Presbyterians aren't quite as humorous about it. But that's okay. They'll learn in heaven. So, <laughs> so, so I love my Southern Baptist Convention. Not because I was born in it. Being born in it is a good way to know all that's wrong with it. Right? And there's a lot, isn't there? And there always is. It doesn't really matter what generation we're in. There's always something going on. 
Isn't there? Isn't there always something wrong in everything we care about? All of you are annoyed by your wife or your husband about something. Don't even pretend. Ah, I just can't believe when he does that. I'll just leave it there because, honestly, it's mostly the guys. I mean, let's be real. It's just terrible. There's always something wrong in everything. And we should not be troubled by it. We should work diligently, as our Father does, to sanctify it. Knowing perfectly well that just as our Father does... We are going to have to be patient because half of what we do will be undone before we close our mouth. Is that not true? How many of your habitual sins have uh, stuck with you a little longer than you told God they would? Get real. Are we unclear? Of course Baptist life is a mess. In fact, I'm going to tell you what, that's a feature, not a bug. It is. It is. The Catholics designed an Episcopal system, and it is much less messy. Now, it has its messes, God knows, but but it is much less messy than ours. They have a very clear hierarchy with apostolic succession and all these big $5 words, and, and boy, it's something. How's that working out for you? So then we come along, and the Presbyterians come up with a system that honestly looks like what I would have come up with. I mean, I'm all about the Presbyterians. They got it going on. They're smart. They've got courts. What you don't know is I'm a lawyer, so I get into that. I think that's cool. Oh, my goodness. Let's go. But there's this problem. When you have an appeals court system, eventually... That attracts bad people because people are always attracted to power and bad people are attracted to it most. Because what were we just talking about? Are not all these systems about obtaining power? Using guilt to obtain power. And it doesn't matter if we are uh, eliminating the bourgeoisie or eliminating the privileged. It doesn't matter. The The words change. The script's always the same. It doesn't matter. The outcome is how you should judge. Oh, wait, what what was that Jesus said something about? By their fruits you shall know them? Oh! My issue with Presbyterianism has nothing to do with my, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. I love them to death. In fact, I flirt with Presbyterians as proven by the fact I married one. So, so I'm not picking on them when I say that structurally over a 500-year period, it proved to have a flaw that the Baptists, with their messier and, in my view, much less thought-out system, turned out to be smarter, but that's not the point. It proved to not be resilient because when the wicked men who defrocked Machen got control of the appeals court process, there was no means by which to undo that. You are part of the only denomination that has ever been taken over by the left and recovered. You're it. That alone would be enough for me to be a Baptist. It's not the only reason I'm a Baptist, but that would be enough. Because here's the thing that you need to love about the SBC. There are others, but there is this. 
You need to love the SBC because at the end of the day, it's accountable to the Baptist in the pew. It's cumbersome, it's messy, it's difficult, it takes time, but it's accountable. You say, well, I can think of all kind of ways it's not being very accountable right now. Well, me too, that's not the point. Because when push came to shove, and when enough Baptists in the pew realized that they were teaching down at that seminary that Jesus was the bastard son of a Jewish whore, the Baptist in the pew rose up. And the Baptist in the pew elected better presidents who named better committees on committees, who named better committees on nominations, who named better trustees, and those men were sent home. That's what the resurgence was about. There's a lot of mythology about the resurgence now. That's what it was. And I am pleased as a 49-year-old and therefore much too young to have mattered to have been a very minor foot soldier at the end. I love those men. They're flawed too. Some of them are actually flawed. Some of them have been slandered. It doesn't matter. Are we worshiping men or worshiping God? Are we exalting his word or those who preach it? I don't care what they do. I don't care what they did. If we need to make a change, we'll make it. What I care about is God and His Son who died for me. We have a mechanism. We have a polity that is conducive to a vast number of people motivated by the indwelling Holy Spirit to be able to make change. It's not perfect. Oh, it's not perfect. I wouldn't have designed it that way. But I'd have been wrong. You know, that's one of the things I do. I write bylaws for companies, mostly my own these days. That's cool. I started writing bylaws for things. I was, I was in seventh grade. And the Ozark Middle School in Ozark, Arkansas, decided, I assume that means the principal, decided that we should have a student body government. And they said, Rod, would you like to take a crack at writing the Constitution of the student body government? And I did. And they're still using it. And I've been writing constitutions for things ever since. Went over to Cambridge and learned about the drafting and ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Went to law school, learned about constitutional law. Been writing bylaws for corporations and for nonprofit organizations and for all kinds of things ever since. It's not a job. It's just kind of a joy. I just do it for fun. It's crazy. I'm a nerd. But I know what difference a comma in the wrong place makes for the future history of an organization. I wouldn't have designed it this way. But praise God, somebody did. Somebody was smarter than me. A lot of somebodies. You should love your SBC. Not to the exclusion of Christ. If it ever goes heretical and there's no way to bring it back, then abandon it, burn it down. But that has not happened. 
Didn't even happen back then. It was a few guys at the top. Let me tell you, this is important. This is important for you to get. It is so vital. It seems dark because the forces of darkness are arrayed against us and they're guilting us and they're constantly, what is that word again? Alienating us from one another. Now you're defined as alienated from one another. The SBC is important because we educate. I don't remember what the statistic is off the top of my head, but I want to say we educate a third of all of the seminary students on the continent. Do you think those six institutions matter? I'm not saying anything against the other seminaries. I'm saying that if those seminaries go awry, there is a way by which the people of God can do something about it. That's special. That's worth bleeding and dying for. We have this giant missionary force. That's not any knock on other missionary forces. Praise God for them. But if IMB and NAM start doing heretical things, and they have in our lifetimes, if they do, there's something we can do. I love that. I love it passionately. I love the men who try to serve in those roles, however imperfectly they do it. And I even love the ones who need a good whacking. I love what God's done here. He has amassed a collection of people who believe passionately in the autonomy of the local church and the priesthood of the individual believer. And he, he gave them away. I'm not saying it's literally inspired, but, but he gave them a way. He showed them a means by which to pool vast sums of, of widow's mites into a form that could do infinitely more than we could have done apart. And let me go one further, because this is, this is the businessman talking. It is a massive exercise in risk mitigation. My church supports a lot of missionaries directly, and I love them for that, but I keep trying to talk them into higher CP giving because I know what happens when you have a church split. Or in some of your churches that don't have elders, maybe Aunt Fanny gets a little upset because the preacher changed the toilet paper color, and so, so on Wednesday night we're going to fire him. And what happens to the missionary on the field? The Florida Baptist Children's Home. The International Mission Board, Southern Seminary, all these things go on like nothing happened when we spread the risk over 47,000 churches instead of counting on each of us individually to get it done. You say, well, I don't like everything they do. Well, I don't like everything anybody does. So what? God's done this great thing. It is our duty by birth and by choice, to steward it with all our heart and all our soul. Because it's His. And it's His for spreading the gospel and discipling those saved. It's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. You know what it is? It's ours. Because He let us have it for a little while. I love it. I want you to, too. What are you not doing about it? Well, most of you aren't thinking about what I just said, so let's start there. But see, that alienation thing, that's a two-edged sword. 
Some of you folks feel very alienated from the mechanisms of the convention, and I understand, believe me. It seems a little daunting. Um, people who aren't even taught civics these days, uh, which is most of our countrymen, um, certainly aren't going to figure out Baptist church polity, which is on its best day, Byzantine. Really is. But I have good news for you. It's also not that complicated. Basically, here's what it is. Hi, I'm Rod. How are you today? That's it. It's what you do in your church. You get to know the new guy. Only in this case, you're the new guy. So I know you're going to hate me when I say this, but show up at the meeting. Morton Blackwell has a rule, because I've been... I've talked about this once or twice. I bet you didn't know that. Usually to conservative groups who feel alienated from the Republican Party. And I keep telling them. I've been telling them since college. I was the youngest state college Republican chairman in the United States. Bet you didn't know that. Didn't have any reason to. And, and I was on the College Republican National Committee. I was the youngest co-chairman of a state Republican Party platform committee ever. I've done a thing or two. And what I've learned is very simple. Show up. Show up. The world belongs to those who show up. Okay? What you're not doing about it is, oh, goodness, who wants to go to another stupid meeting? I've got you a rule. Never, ever miss a meeting. You might remotely think later, you would regret missing. Oh, I just don't, I don't know that it does any good. Half the time they're doing boring stuff. Yeah, you got to be there for the boring stuff to be there when the not boring stuff happens. You go along and it's just drudgery, 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 drudgery. And then one day, boom, we're talking about a major heresy. Right? Patience. Maturity. Isn't this the difference between adults and children? Is it not? I mean, really. So, yeah, in Florida, we have this state board of missions. There are some leaders of this group that need to be there. And, and they need to be there maybe as observers, but better yet, as members. Because we actually have a system that is, learn this phrase, porous at the bottom. We have a system that is whosoever will. We have a system that is, here am I, send me. Let me teach you something else. Your fiduciary duty runs from the convention to the institution you get to serve on, not the other way around. We have some fine folks, if you wish to call them that, <laughs> who have forgotten that completely. Isn't that the problem we had in the resurgence? Isn't the problem we had in the resurgence fundamentally that the trustees of seminaries like Southern had decided that they were loyal to the institution against the Baptist in the pew, not entrusted with the institution by the Baptist in the pew? 
Isn't that exactly the nature of the problem? Well, I never really thought about it that way. I was just thinking about them being a bunch of heretics. And No, you've got to think about the mechanics of it to be able to make a change. Let's put that another way. We're going to borrow from my friend Morton Blackwell. You owe it to what you believe to learn the strategies and tactics necessary to win. And don't talk to me about what you believe unless you're doing something about winning. Results do matter. Say, well, but it's God who has control of the results. Yeah, it's also God who has control of whether you breathe or not. How do you know that you were not raised up for this very purpose at this exact moment? You can spend your time on a lot of things. Many of them are very good. There are very few in your lifetime, in your nation, in your world that matter as much as this one. And there's nothing that matters more than the gospel. So if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not preaching the gospel, if you're not speaking the gospel in your regular conversation, if you're not sharing it with people who have never heard it before, don't kid me about your faith. You need to do a gut check. That's first. But then also everyone in this room is a leader. Everyone in this room self-selected into the pool of leaders by paying for a ticket and showing up. You didn't come from across town, most of you. Many of you flew a long distance. You came here to learn. What are you going to do with what you learn? What you have to do with what you learn is show up. It matters. It matters. It matters whether Boyce ran Southern or Toy ran Southern. It matters. It matters a great deal now. Southern Baptist life is not a bubble. Lots of Baptists think it is. Lots of Baptists think there's the world and then there's Baptist world. And, and I understand how we get there. I, I get it. I do. This is just one tiny part of the battlefield from the enemy's perspective. Why did they take out those mainline denominations? They took them out because they were getting in the way of the greater socialist agenda that in the following decade engulfed country after country after country. It engulfed Spain. It engulfed Germany. It engulfed Italy. It engulfed eventually all of Eastern Europe. Eventually, half of the world bowed the knee to the government idol. First, they came for the church. Show up while there's time. Make hay before the rains and while the sun shines. There is time, but there is not much. And we don't get to count it. God alone numbers our days. So for his sake and for his glory, show up. Be the difference. And don't give me a bunch of theobabble about, oh, but it, no. It will happen through his people. He will do it, but he will do it 
through men and women of goodwill who love him above all things because they are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Show up. This battle can and I believe will be won. Thank you.